Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. So in verse 19, we'll start there. Let's read verse 18 so we know why he's saying verse 19. He says in verse 18, Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Again, that's a lot of times misinterpreted. But like we said, what Paul is stating and what he's been arguing is that God has set the criteria for salvation. And the criteria is faith alone. Faith alone in the Messiah for salvation. He's mentioned this in Romans 1 all the way through Romans 8. That's been his argument. So, the arguer with Paul, the interlocutor, the hypothetical arguer, if you want to call that, is saying, look, it's not fair that God gets to set the criteria for this. And, and then he says, whom he, and Paul says, who, uh, whom he wills, he hardens. Well, we already learned that if you don't meet the criteria, then the penalty for not meeting that criteria is hardness of heart. That's the penalty. And so the criteria is come to faith. If not, the criteria then is judgment by hard heart. That's what we ended up saying. So therefore, the interlocutor, the arguer with Paul in verse 19 comes back and says this, or Paul is saying, you're going to tell me this. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Now, again, the Calvinists misunderstand this question and interpret that in light of their presuppositions. The Calvinists are saying, oh, the interlocutor is a Arminian, and the Arminian interlocutor or the arguer is saying, well, it's not fair that God saves some and hardens others. And that, my friends, is the worst interpretation of the passage you could possibly make because you're reading into the text something that's not there, an argument that's not there. That is not what the interlocutor is arguing. Let's go back to the original context of what Paul has been arguing about to a particular Jewish group. He is arguing with Jews who think they're saved because of their national heritage. They think they're saved because they keep the law. So their, their heritage and law keeping is what makes them saved. So the interlocutor or the arguer with Paul is saying, well, I don't get this. He's not saying, I don't understand why, why God gives mercy to some and hardens others. He's not making an Arminian argument. He is saying this. I don't understand why Israel still has to come to faith in the Messiah. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, you're talking about an individual that believes he's saved based on his nationality, that he's saved based on the law. And he's saying, look, we've been taught all these years that we're saved according to these things. This criteria is what God expects. And Paul, you're telling us there's another criteria and that the criteria has changed. So if he's changed the criteria, 
then why does he still find fault with us? Because this is what we were going on. And again, it's not that the interlocutor needs to make sense. He's not making sense. He is working from false theology. That's why his questions don't sound right. So it's like if a Mormon was arguing with you, and you're like, that question doesn't even make sense. Or a Jehovah Witness was arguing with you. Their questions don't make sense because they have wrong theology. So the interlocutor has wrong theology, and he's still not seeing why he has to come to faith in the Messiah. He doesn't think it's fair. Because for centuries they've been taught by the rabbis, you come to faith, or sorry, you're saved based on your identity, based on your nationality. And then he goes, who, will, who has resisted his will? Now, the, the will is this. The guy is arguing, look, Paul, if I take you out on your logic, then what I'm seeing you say is that good came out of something negative with Israel. Because Paul's point is, there's something that happened to Israel for the betterment of the world. And he's saying, for who has resisted his will? He's saying, basically, Paul, look, you're telling me that Israel is like Pharaoh. Because you gave an illustration, and the illustration was Pharaoh is like the non-remnant of Israel, and Moses is the remnant of Israel. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God in order that God could reach the whole world. So why does God hold Israel accountable for that? Or why does God hold Pharaoh accountable for that? Now again, I'm not saying the arguer, the arguer is logical. Let me ask you this question so that this can make more sense. Pharaoh had already hardened his heart, didn't he? So by the time in Exodus 9 that God is starting to harden his heart, he's already there. He's already gone. And so God is just carrying out, giving the strength to Pharaoh to carry out what he will do in order that God will accomplish his evangelism to the whole world through the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. And Paul's point is that God is doing this right now with Israel. That the Israelites who have hardened their heart, he is using their hardness for something good for the Gentiles. He's going to use that for the Gentiles. And so the arguer is saying, you're telling me that God is using something bad for something good. Well, if he's using something bad for something good, why does he hold the, the, the people doing it accountable if good is coming out of it? Now, this interlocutor has argued with Paul about salvation already about this. So, so follow me with this. In Revelation, Romans 3, uh, let's just start in verse 1 and I'll go down to verse uh, 5 or 6. So here's the interlocutor again in Romans 3, and he's arguing with the Apostle Paul. So Paul comes back and says, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? And so, because the idea is faith is faith. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, you come to the Lord the same way. But then he says, well, there is an advantage uh, to the Jews. He says, much in every way, chiefly because of them were committed the oracles of God, the Scriptures, for what uh, if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? 
Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, uh, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So the idea is that even if the Jews don't believe and they were given special privileges, that's not on God, that's on them. They're the ones who decided not to do it. It's not, it has nothing to do with God's faithfulness. But he continues on, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? Now, understand what the interlocutor is doing to Paul. He's saying, look, you're telling me even in salvation that the more sinful a person is, the more glory God gets in saving him. So the interlocutor is saying, then why, why is God holding this person accountable? Because it would be better if we just kept sinning and sinning and sinning because God would get more glory and more glory and more glory. And again, I'm not saying the interlocutors make any sense. This is the argument he keeps making. And he misunderstands Paul. And then if you move to verse uh, chapter 6, the arguer still says the same thing to the Apostle Paul. In, verse, in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And that's a very famous passage, right? And Paul goes, certainly not, right? And that's his... But what, what's the problem here? Because it's the same problem that in chapter 3, in chapter 6, and in chapter 9 that the arguer is making. Paul, I don't understand why you keep saying that good is coming out of the bad, God's glory, witnessing to the Gentiles. So why does God hold the bad people accountable? And Paul says, well, if he didn't judge them, he couldn't judge the world. So basically, Paul dismisses the argument and says, you fail to understand this. You fail to understand that God can bring good out of evil and use evil people for, for good purposes and still hold them accountable because why? The evil that the people do was caused by what? God or them? Them. God is so powerful that he can use the sin of a nation, sin of an individual, and bring good out of it and receive the glory. Therefore, that's why he can hold people accountable, even though he's using people like Pharaoh and the non-remnant of Israel to bring good things from it. That's Paul's argument, if that makes sense. This is where Calvinism doesn't understand the argument. Calvinism just takes it at black and white and just says, look, the arguer's got to be arguing against free will. It's not fair that God hardens other people and, and gives mercy to other people. That's not the argument. The argument is whether or not God can hold people accountable if he's using them to accomplish good purposes. That's the argument. And Paul is basically saying, that's stupid. That's just stupid to think like that. But, but notice how many times the Apostle Paul has had to address the Jewish arguer. He's had to do it how many times? Three different times because the guy keeps bringing it up. That shall we sin? Basically, when, God, when Paul says, shall we sin that grace may abound? What do you think the guy's saying? 
He's saying, well, according to you, we should, we should all be sinning because it, according to you, it gives God more glory every time we sin more. And, and the nation of Israel, because they're in rejection, they're giving more glory to Jesus right now. So they should stay in that position. And so why should God hold them accountable for that? It, I know it seems nuts, but this is what the guy's doing. Okay, that being the case, tell me why this foolish arguer would make such a stupid statement saying we should just continue to sin so that grace may abound. And because of that, then God shouldn't hold us accountable because it's making His grace and glory more better. Or not more better, but uh, greater. I should that's the wrong English. Uh, not more better. Uh, just greater. Greater is the word I'm looking for. It would, it would more greater. Ginormous. Right? So he's, why would he say something so stupid? Who in their right mind would think like that? Because Paul keeps coming back saying, we don't act like that. Just because we're saved doesn't mean we have a license to do anything we want. Who in the world makes that kind of argument? Say that first part again. That what now? Is he discrediting Paul? You're on to something about the discrediting. He's trying to be a smart aleck, and he's trying to take Paul's argument to its logical extension. He thinks he's smart, and he thinks he's doing this, but the guy doesn't know how to argue. But he's thinking, well, if I take you on that, if I just take you on God just saves people based on faith alone and gives them grace based on nothing they do, uh, any works, any nationality, just y'all come, come to faith, and, and y'all saved. If I take you out on your logical extension, Paul, he thinks he's got Paul, um, then, then we can do anything we want. This is crazy. What was, because you're dealing with a law keeper, right? He's not only saying salvation's of, of the Jews, but he's saying it's by law keeping. And so he's, he's trying to embarrass Paul saying, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard because then I could sin and do all much more and then take you all, your logical conclusion. It gives God more glory because you just said it. It gives God glory to save individuals and, and more glory if they're the worst sinners. So let me take you on your, your logical conclusion. Yes. And he's, he's trying. Yeah, circling back, but he's trying not, in, in the discrediting, he's trying to, sh- to say that grace through faith doesn't make sense. That nationality and law, which we've been taught by the rabbis, is the only consistent system. You're given a system, and now you basically are saying that you've changed, that God changed the criteria on us all of a sudden, which he didn't always been by faith, because Paul points out that, look, uh, Abraham was saved the same way as you guys were, right? Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness in Romans 4. So the guy is trying to discredit Paul's argument. Now, who would do that today? Who would try to discredit by me or you telling somebody, well, how do you get to heaven when you die? You believe. You believe. Believe, yeah. Do you have to be sincere? No, it just says believe. Do you have to be crying? 
It says you have to believe in Jesus and cry. No, he doesn't say that. You have to believe in Jesus and be really, 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 really committed. You gotta be real serious. So it's belief plus be serious. Is it belief and then you have an emotional reaction? Is it belief and I say a prayer? Is it belief and I walk an aisle? Is it belief and um, I'm willing to give up all my sins right there and then and there? Yeah, I have to give up um, my, my alcoholic addiction and come to faith. I have to believe and give up my alcoholic addiction. That? What is it? Yeah, so anytime you start adding stuff to belief, you're now making the interlocutor's argument. Because the argument from the interlocutor today is saying, you saying that belief is the only thing that gets you into heaven is, let me put the words that the interlocutors say today, easy believism. It is a license for sin. It requires nothing of the individual. It, it, uh, it, 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 it will allow people to sin rampantly. The system you're telling people if it's by faith alone. And, and therefore you will lose control of these people because they're just going to do anything they want since it's not based on them living righteously. It's easy believism. It's cheap grace. Have you heard those terms? It's just cheap grace. So what are they trying to do? The same thing the interlocutor is doing to the Apostle Paul. He's saying your arguments don't make sense because it's going to give people a license to sin. Your arguments don't make sense because we have been taught all these years that, you know, what, what, what right here, Paul, right here, there's a whole bunch of commands in here. What is these for? If it says honor the Sabbath, Paul. It says be circumcised. I mean, Paul, are you telling me I don't have to obey God at all? Is that what you're telling me? Because I have, I can point to the, I can point to the list right here. Thou shalt, thou shalt, you shall do this, you shall do that. And it says choose life or choose death. Choose obedience and choose, uh, death by your obedience or disobedience. Right there, Paul. Right there. Right there. You. In the 21st century, it says it's believe alone. Look, look, look. What, what do you do with all these commands? And what you start realizing is the interlocutor, it might seem bizarre to you, the kind of arguments he keeps making, but it's the same arguments they're making against us who say it's by faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. It's the same thing the cults say to us. It's the same things the works righteousness Christians say to us. It's the same thing the Lordship salvation say to us. It's the same thing the Calvinists say to us. You must prove you're saved by your works. Notice it's always going back to the law. It's always going back to works. And so the argument is then, look, look, Paul, why does anyone find fault then? If it's by faith alone, then I can do anything I want to do. So why would God call me into account? I don't get it. You know, what, what, what am I accountable for? 
I obviously don't have to keep the law. I'm not accountable to that because I'm saved by a different method. I'm saved, you, you tell me, Paul, I'm saved by faith. Why do I have to be a good person? Why can't I go live it up? And basically, that's the problem Paul always was accused of, that your system allows sin and doesn't uh, control it. And so basically the guy's saying, I can do anything I want to do in your system. That's why your system is a flawed system, Paul. I saw a hand somewhere. Go ahead. Yeah. But when they, 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 the guy would point to a command. Look, thou shalt, uh, in Paul's day, keep the Sabbath. And he says, like, well, I don't understand what you're talking about, man. It says right there, i got to do this. And God says in other passages, you obey me, you'll have life. You disobey me, you don't have life. And he's, he's referring back to that, and he's saying, right there tells me how to be saved. Right there. The commands. Which commands? Remember, they kept asking the Messiah, which are the most important commands, right, to keep? Why are they asking for that? Because they believe that commands save them, that law-keeping saves them. And so they're looking for the ultimate commands. What does the rich young ruler say? I have done all that. I have kept the commands. And then, you know, here comes the Apostle Paul flushing all of this out, and he's saying, no, no. That doesn't make a hill of beans, according to salvation. Abraham was saved by faith. So, what I'm saying to you is, is these stupid questions from the arguer with Paul is the same stupid questions unbelievers will falsely accuse you and I of. In the cults, in, in, in Jehovah Witnesses, Mormonism, what, whatever you want to say, they will do the same thing to us, saying, I don't understand why God holds anyone to account. If, 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 if it's all by grace, then I, I, I guess you do what you want to do. Now, here's the deal. You know that's crazy. You know that's not what God intended, is that, okay, you get saved, but then you don't get to act any way you act, want to act, right? Why? What would constrain you from obeying, uh, from not obeying? Well, I mean, you're saved by grace. Okay, you're saved, man. What, what are you worried about? Just go out and live it out here how you want to live. Why? What constrains you from that? Fear of going to hell? Fear of the Lord? Holy Spirit would convict you? But what do you got to lose? Because you're already saved. What would you got to? What do you have to lose? Rewards, and and temporal life. You could you could die a, a a quicker death. You could lose temporal rewards and temporal blessings, and you'll lose eternal rewards. And that's what constrains the believer. It's not the fear of losing salvation that constrains the believer. It's the Holy Spirit and the conviction and the fear of the Lord and the fear of losing temporal blessings and eternal rewards. That's what constrains the believer. And Paul will get to that in his application of things, but not when he's dealing with simply salvation. You, you cannot add anything to that. Otherwise, you're adding to the work of Christ. Okay, so... When the cults say that you guys are just going to go hog wild, that's not true. That's not true. Now, let me ask you this. This is a Calvinist question. The Calvinists will say, look, with your free grace, your libertarian free will, 
You're telling me that a person can get saved and just simply by believing, right? Yes, by believing. And they'll say, well, what if the person gets into, you know, all kinds of sin and, and it doesn't, he doesn't bear fruit? Then what would you say? So how would you respond to a person that says, look, I, the guy's not bearing fruit. He must not be saved. What would you say to that? Notice they were, they used the word fruit. Anytime you hear someone use the word fruit, they're misusing it. Because the word fruit is, comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And it comes in a specific context. And guess what the context is? False teachers. And when Messiah says about false teachers in the Sermon on the Mount, by their fruits you will know them, he is not talking about believers versus unbelievers. He is talking about teachers, false teachers specifically. And how would I know a false teacher? Because the fruit of their doctrine that they teach. The doctrine that they teach would be the fruit. And so if a Mormon comes to you saying that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, you would know that's bad fruit and that's a false teacher. Or someone who would deny the incarnation, that's a bad fruit. So the fruit inspection is only for false teachers, not necessarily for believers or unbelievers. So when you hear someone use that context, they're using it out of context. It is not for determining whether someone is a believer or not. So they're using the wrong passage. That being the case, they say, okay, fine, I won't use that passage, Brandon. But I can tell, I can tell if they really got saved because they would live holy. They would live righteous lives. They would turn their life around, Brandon, because uh, the Holy Spirit lives in them and uh, no person with the Holy Spirit would ever get involved in that kind of sin. And I want to say, hey, dude, have you ever looked in the mirror? You're describing you. <laughs> but they don't see it. They think they've already made it. But when they tell you that, what, you know, what do you, what, what do you say? Uh, if a person goes through a protracted period of time in their life and they're, you know, a goofball and, and they're acting like an idiot, am I supposed to say, you're not saved? Let me ask you this. When the Corinth church is being chastised by the apostle Paul, did he ever in one instance in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians say, you guys are a bunch of unbelievers, man. I know it. I know by your carnality. You're a bunch of unbelievers. No, what he called them is saints. And he said the saints are acting carnal. He says you're being controlled by your flesh. But he never called them unbelievers. He never, ever challenged the Corinth believers of their salvation. Never would he do that. He only challenged their disciple ship, their maturity, their growth. That's the only thing he will ever get onto them about is that by now you should be here and it's been three years and you should be up to this level and you're not. You're still babies. You're still on milk. But he'll never, ever call the Corinth church unbelievers, ever. And so what you start realizing in, in uh, the Bible, especially in the New Testament, the challenge of salvation is typically not made. It's always a challenge to discipleship. That's usually what the challenge is. So, for instance, when you look at 1 John, 
and you take the whole book of 1 John, the Calvinists will interpret 1 John as a test of salvation. That if you do X, Y, and Z, and what John, 1 John lays out, then you're a believer. That's the test of a believer. And it's like, you fool. It's not the test of a believer. It's a test of spiritual maturity. It's a test of discipleship. And you take the test and you figure out where you're at in discipleship with 1 John. That's why he calls them saints. He would not start a letter by saying saint, uh, saints or unbelievers. It's just, it kind of boggles the mind. To go further in verse 20, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Okay, so again, Paul is saying to the man, you have no right, no earthly right to challenge God on the criteria that he sets for salvation and for hardness. You have no right to question that. And what is that guy questioning? He's questioning faith alone. Because he thinks national salvation and law-keeping. But he's saying, hey, you know what, Paul? You're given a whole new system. You've changed the thing, and I challenge that. I don't believe that. And basically, he's telling the guy, you have no right to challenge this. Who are you to challenge the criteria that God sets for salvation? And then he moves into the idea of the lump of clay, which is coming out of Isaiah and is coming out of Jeremiah. And we're going to have to take the whole class time to talk about these things. But here's what I want to leave you with. The Calvinists will come into the situation, into this text, and read into the text something that's not in the original text of the Old Testament about the clay. They will misinterpret the clay as this, that God has every right, and this is a misinterpreted passage, every right to do whatever he wants since he's the potter and we are the clay, that God has any right to make people either saved or damnable. And he fits some for noble purposes, for salvation, and he molds some for eternal damnation. And so he's the potter. He gets to do with the clay what he wants to do. And here's my question. Is that what Jeremiah and that what Isaiah is saying when you read the original text that Paul is quoting? What's your, what's your hunch? Here's the hermeneutic principle. If Paul quotes somebody, a prophet or whoever, then go back and read the quote. And brother, you will see that when you read Isaiah and you read Jeremiah, we'll get more into this. What they are saying is this. Israel is the clay, okay? Imagine Israel on the potter's wheel, and they're the piece of clay. God is the potter. That's the the image that Isaiah and Jeremiah are giving. Now, here's what happens if you read these passages. Israel is given conditional warnings as the clay. And this is what they're told. You keep doing this, messing up, Goofing around, I'm going to turn you into this. If you repent and stop what you're doing, I will turn you into this. You make the choice about who you want to be. But once you make that choice, I have the right to make you into that. But you're going to make the choice. Now, wait a second. 
the Calvinists read that passage and see what the setting is, guess who gets to determine the, the way they will go and how God will shape them? They do. So he's telling Israel, if you choose to repent, I will make you for noble purposes. I will use you to do exactly what I intended you to do. To re be a light to the nations and to regenerate you and all that stuff. So all the good stuff will happen if you repent. If you don't, then the penalty comes on as I will judge you. And I will judge you by hardening you. I will judge you by blinding you. I will judge you because you refuse to repent as a nation. So let me ask you this question. Does God have the right to tell the nation of Israel, based on your decision, I'm either going to bless you or I'm going to curse you? Of course he does. He's God. And the, but is, is, is Israel given their free will? Yes. Here's what Israel doesn't get and they, they don't like. They like the idea that they can choose whatever path they want to be on. But here's what they don't like. And this is what the interlocutor doesn't like either. They don't like that they can't choose their consequences. And the same is true with the interlocutor. God is saying, look, I set the criteria. You come to faith in my, in my son by faith. You get mercy. I will bless you. I will give you mercy. You don't. Guess what I have the right to do to you? I have the right to judge you, and I will start by hardening you. Does God, no, let's back up again. Does God have the right to do those two things, to give mercy upon who he will, who he sets the criteria on, if they meet the criteria, and does he have the right to give judgment to those who reject the criteria? End of story. You've just figured out what the Apostle Paul is arguing. And you now have figured out what the interlocutor has a problem with. He doesn't like the consequences because now he is being told by the Apostle Paul that the majority of the nation of Israel has been now set aside and judged. And the remnant's still alive, but the majority has been judged and it's coming in 70 AD and there's nothing you can do about that because you made a decision to reject the Messiah and therefore all that waits for you is judgment as a nation. You have decided how God will shape you on the potter's will. Takeaway, this is happening on a daily occurrence with people with God. They're, they are deciding whether or not they're going to uh, relate to God on his criteria or not. And guess what happens if they don't? They're choosing a path in which they will become hardened. They're choosing a path in which they will become blinded. Is God unfair by doing that? No, thank you. Thank you. That's what Paul's point is. Who are you to argue against that criteria? You're no one. He gets to set that criteria. He gives free will, but he sets the criteria. Okay. Whew. Any questions? I know it's a lot. It's a mouthful. It gets a little complicated, but you have to you have to wade through it a little bit um, to understand that. We'll get more into the potter and the clay next week. Yes. It's very possible. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a default mode for most pastors. They, they, they just, that's, they read John Piper and they say, well, that's what John Piper said. And then they just go with it. Or this is what, uh, uh, uh Montgomery Boyce, uh, uh, 
said, or this is what J.I. Packard said, or this is what Arthur Pink said, and they just go with it, man. They're smarter than me, and so they just go with it. And they, they really don't research it themselves. They don't study it. They don't, they don't even look at the Potter passages. Most Calvinists have not looked at the Potter passages. How are you going to know what the Potter means if you don't look at what Isaiah and Jeremiah said? I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I think it's laziness, dude. I think it's flat-out laziness. <laughs> no, a pastor should be better than that. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that's the thing, is that you, your heart can get so hard, you're going to try to force your way, no matter what, and you'll try to make it work. You know, the funny thing is, Jesus said something similar to that about the Pharisees. He says, the kingdom of heaven is available to everybody, but everyone's trying to force their way in. They're trying to climb over the fence. Do you remember them saying that? What did he mean by that? They wouldn't go through the door. They tried to go over the fence in other ways and climb over in other ways and force themselves in because they don't want to go through the door. And who's the door? It's Jesus. It's by faith alone. They don't want to do that. They want to climb in other ways. And so a lot of people force it, Richard. Yeah. Oh, boy. And it's, it, it's not a good end. It's a bad road. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.